This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. That's What She Said by the Chandler Travis Orchestra. And that's on their CD, Let's Have a Pancake. (laughs) Uh, Chandler Travis uh, and Steve Shook used to open for my dad in the 70s and uh, smoked a lot of pot with my father and ate lots of boxes of cereal. So I have a fond place for Mr. Chandler Travis and his crazy antics. Uh, you can find him um, on the East Coast, uh, in that little uh, vicinity outside of Boston. It's not Nantucket, but there's another islandy place like that. Oh, God, menopause in my brain just doesn't work. Uh, maybe Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, who knows? Uh, so anyway, you can find his stuff at www.chandlertravis.com. So, it was the spring equinox this week, and uh, spring has sprung. It really has. My wisteria is blooming, as is my jasmine, as is my coral tree, as is my mood. Uh, You know, the last few weeks, I was very dark. I didn't share much with you because I didn't want to scare you, but (laughs) it's been very dark between, well, I mean, just all the shit going on in the world, and then some personal stuff around me and stuff. So anyway, this week, even though nothing externally has changed, uh, but I have a new perspective. So I feel better and I I feel happy. And uh, I've been working diligently uh, doing some writing this week, which I'm very happy about. That always makes me feel better. And I've been meditating. So 
something about that. I should remember those things. Remind me in like two months when I'm depressed again. Maybe you should be writing and meditating every day, Kelly. You were in such a good mood that week. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's right. I was. Yeah. So, uh, hmm, what else? Oh, well, uh, we've got some great guests coming up in the next few weeks. I'll clue you into that later. I uh, hope you're having a good spring equinox week yourself. And I want to jump right in today with my guest because uh, we've got some clips to play of his and he and I love to talk. So we could be here for weeks, actually, uh, but we only get 50 minutes today. So I want to play uh, with him some more. So today, actually, like I said last week, my guest is Dylan Brody, who's a friend of mine. He's uh, a storyteller. Uh, He calls himself, which I just love, a purveyor of fine words and phrases. I really do like that. Uh, And um, I thought of instead of a lengthy introduction, which I don't know how lengthy it could be because he is a storyteller and he's a friend of mine and I could go on and on. But but I thought I would just play a little clip that really, really describes uh, what he does and 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 his particular beautiful slant on it all. So uh, this is a little bit from his new album called Twist of the Wit. It's called I Like to Support the Arts. Those of you familiar with my work will know that many, and really who isn't, <laughs> many of my stories can be lengthy and heavy and multi-textured shades of gray like the prominent proboscis of the ponderous pachyderm. This first piece, to maintain the mammalian metaphor, is little more than a bit or two of gerbil fuzz, a bit or two of verbal jazz. It is a twist of the wit, a trick of the tongue, a tantalizing taste of linguistic terpsichore. It is a a pithy parcel of prosodic prestidigitation, if you will. And if you won't, you're a bunch of anti-semantic bastards. I like to support the arts. On my way home, I stopped at a convenience store to buy milk for my morning coffee, ice cream for my wife. On the way in, I was approached by an unemployed magician. He had the haunted eyes of a hungry hound. He said, I got a quarter in my pocket. I can make it disappear. I got a quarter in my pocket. I can make it disappear. I said, show me. I swear to you, all he did was snap his fingers. He said, it's gone. I said, where did it go? He said, check your pocket. I checked my pocket, and sure enough, there, amongst all my other loose change, a bright, shiny quarter. I said, how do I know this is yours? He said, check the date. I said, it's from 1994. He said, that's mine. I returned it to him. I said, show me again. He said, I never repeat myself. I never repeat myself. I said, show me another. He said, I will need a $10 bill. I said, all I have is a 20. He said, that will do. I handed him a $20 bill. He folded it up tight right in front of me. No abracazam, no alacadabra. When he unfolded it again, it was a five. He returned it to me. I said, that's amazing. Change it back. He said, if I could change fives into twenties, I wouldn't be out here working for tips. I said, I'm sorry, I didn't know I was supposed to tip you. I like to support the arts. I gave him the five. He thanked me for my patronage. I went into the convenience store. I bought milk for my morning coffee. I bought ice cream for my wife. As I came back out, He was approaching another man in the parking lot. He said, I got a quarter in my pocket. I can make it disappear. I got a quarter in my pocket. I can make it disappear. I watched him with the hungry eyes of a hunting hawk, and I swear to you, ladies and gentlemen, all he did was snap his fingers. (laughs) Thank you. So that was I Like to Support the Arts on Dylan's new twist of the wit album welcome dylan thank you kelly thank you for having me it's my pleasure uh so how long have you been a storyteller uh really for five six years i've been a a, a, an an active storyteller i I always talked a lot about myself right um so since childhood i've been uh (laughs) going over and over whatever happened during the day i would be telling it at the dinner table and trying to find all the possible laughs in it and couldn't shut up um but uh about Five, maybe, maybe more, maybe seven years ago now. I don't, I don't, that's not going to be a 
someone checking up on my facts, is there? Uh, not that I know. Several of. years ago, I, I had quit doing stand-up for a long time. I was writing. And uh, I heard on national public radio uh, that there was a, a radio station in San Francisco that was accepting uploads. It, it was calling itself the first all-podcasting radio station, hmm. although it was actually the opposite of that. Uh, it was a, a terrestrial station that broadcast to the San Francisco area and also streamed on the web. Uh, but uh, whatever the, the network was that it was part of owned the, the bandwidth and didn't want to give it up. So in order to sort of uh, uh, grub stake, that's not the word I'm looking for, landhold, uh, sit right, on. Right, right. Keep, keep, keep those airwaves exactly. bandwidth. Right? They needed to have something playing. Gotcha. So they gave this guy the job, and he's recently uh, – I'm in collaboration with him on another project recently. But he, he said, just upload stuff, and if we like anything, we'll put it on. Hmm. And I had this piece that I'd recorded. There was a story. Uh, I recorded it trying to get on This American Life, a, a wonderful series on radio that has never accepted anything I've sent them. <laughs> so uh, I sent him this piece, and within two days he called and said, this is the kind of stuff I was hoping to get. Do you mind if we run it? Mm. And I said, no, go ahead. And he said, do you have any others? And I said, I could do more. And he said, well, how often? And I said, how much are you paying? And he said, nothing. And I said, once a week? And he said, okay. <laughs> uh, so for the next, I want to say 24 weeks. I'm, it might have been 21, but I think it was 24 weeks. Every week I wrote something 9 to 12 minutes long, mm. a story that I would read into a microphone and send up there. And it was nice. I was getting to talk into a microphone again. Uh, there was no pressure of an audience. And the response was incredibly encouraging. So I started dropping them onto CDs that I burned in my own home and sold off my website, and they sounded awful. Uh, they were I hadn't yet learned that if you keep saving as an MP3 every time you make a change, <laughs> yes. you slowly deteriorate the sound. So there, there are whole stories on those first early CDs that I made that sound like they were auto-tuned. You know, I mean, it's just... <laughs> They're just ridiculous. Which is very hip these days. You could have a whole new career in that. <laughs> and yet, not what I was going for with the conversational uh, witty tone. Uh, and they were selling. And mm. not, not in huge numbers, but enough that I was going, hey, people are listening to me. I got a, uh, a piece aired on WBAI in New York. And that day, I sold 70 CDs. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, there's, there might actually be something here. Uh, shortly thereafter, I started thinking about getting out into the world and, and performing again. And I was going to take these stories out, and, and I was going to workout rooms in town like I used to when I was a comic, and taking these intricately woven stories that I created <laughs> and adding the word fuck to them in the hopes that, <laughs> that they would work for the crowd in the bowling alley in Reseda or whatever. Mm. And that was just heartbreaking mm. and making me sad. And then this guy, who is my manager, uh, called me, and he said, listen, I've been listening to your CDs in my car for 16 months. And I'm interested in representing you. And I said, well, you know, I've asked you to represent me three times over the past five years. And he said, I don't remember that. But hmm. come into my office and let's talk. <laughs> and he said, I have no idea how to represent a storyteller. But I'm willing to work on it if you're willing to learn with me. And I said, sure. Right. And he got me to stop turning what I was doing into stand-up. He said, just stop thinking you're a comic. Think of yourself as a humorist. Just see what kind of a shift that makes for you. Um, I sent my early CDs to David Sedaris and right. got beautiful response from him to it. Oh, that's great. So that was just warming and made me feel like I was doing it right. And, and, and that shift, that perspective shift for you, going from comic to, to humorist, uh, what, t tell, me, tell, tell me a little bit about that. Like, what's, what's the technical shift you have to do and what was the inside shift that you had to do? Well, the answer I give all the time is that I had to buy cufflinks. <laughs> And it's amazing how much that's true. Right. And it's, it sounds like the goofiest little thing, but it was a matter of taking what I was doing seriously enough mm. so that I didn't feel like I had to turn it into something that I had done before or had seen before to make it work. Okay, I'm just going to stand where I stand in the clothing that I should be wearing for this performance, and people will come with me or they won't, and that'll be okay. I stopped worrying about a laugh every 15 seconds, which was, you know, my goal as a comic. Yeah. I sort of figured, okay, if there's silence, there's silence. I had to learn to live with silence, which is terrifying on stage. I've seen you tell stories. Mm -hmm. uh, and your stories, like mine, uh, they do. I've asked them. They like mine. 
<laughs> Wait, what? Um, like my stories, yours are funny, but there's also more going on than a laugh all the time. Absolutely, yeah. And the difficulty, particularly for people who grew up in the world of comedy in mm. one way or another, mm. is we're used to that sound of laughter and approval to remind us that they're with us all the time. And it takes a while to learn that the dead silence in the room is a whole different kind of with you. Absolutely. You don't need to win them back just because they're not laughing. Well, and I know for me, when I started doing some more serious pieces, and, and I would get the silence, and, and so you're not sure while you're up there. You're hoping they're with you. And then always what's so lovely is when they come up to you afterwards, and then you get the feedback, and then you go, oh, okay, silence equals good because these people were taking it in. One of the things I found as a comic is that there's all this immediate return. I was addicted to marijuana while I was a comic, and the laughter is very much the same. Uh-huh. It's, I say addicted, but it's not. It's an emotional dependency. I need to hear the laughter. I need to take another hit. Mm-hmm. I need to hear the laughter. I need to take... And when you get into this space where there's actual breathing going on, <laughs> where there's silence in the room and they're with you and they're listening, it can get very, very frightening. You have to really be at home with your own emotional life. And then there's applause at the end, and that is crack. Yeah, absolutely. Because you feel that at the end. When, when it goes from laughter, 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 laughter to applause, it just feels like another applause break. Mm-hmm. When you go from silence to, oh, we get it, applause... There's a, a rush of completion yeah. uh, that sometimes stains my clothes. <laughs> I don't want to know about the details of that. Uh, you were uh, in your first story we listened to here. There was there's a little moment at the very beginning uh, where you say I've I've gone to the store to buy. I, um, it's in the morning, and I've gone to the store to buy milk for myself and ice cream for my wife. Interesting. I don't say that it's in the morning. You don't say it's You've in the morning. You've placed it in the morning. I say I bought milk for my morning coffee and ice cream oh, for my wife. morning coffee. Which makes – I had never thought that anyone might believe that this took place in the morning. But that's fine. I don't mind that you thought that. Well, see, then, cool. then my question is just ridiculous because I was going to say, is the ice cream line – for your wife, a joke then because you're going in the morning and does she eat ice cream in the morning? And I had this whole scenario worked out. And, and that's funny. <laughs> no, I um, I took a long time. This is this is how odd I am with these stories. I took a long time playing with what I was going to be there to buy because I wanted it to be something that I could call back at the end when I went back in. Because mm-hmm. part of what I'm dealing with in the stories is language and sound and almost a repeat refrain feel that isn't musical but has a musicality in it. Sure. Um, And uh, I went through, do I want to do a joke about the stuff you get at a convenience store? Do I want it to be a Slim Jim and a a hot dog? Yeah, exactly. And what I ultimately decided was that as always I should go, as, as I try to remember always, I should go with the truth. Yes. Yeah. Grace Paley, with whom I studied in college, who was a wonderful woman, said, first you write the story, and then you take out everything that's a lie. Mm-hmm. And I finally realized, oh, no, when I'm going into a convenience store, when I'm dr- stopping on the way home, right. I'm getting milk for my morning coffee or I'm getting ice cream for my wife. Make it both. Right. <laughs> that has a nice rhythm. And that was what I went with. Yeah. Um, Speaking of truth and storytelling... Uh, how much is truth for you and, and how much do you let yourself play and embellish a little bit and create more of a tone? Um, there's a, a thing that I mentioned uh, before one of the stories on an early CD. Uh, that I did a, My first ever one-person show was called The Weir Schmuck, Transformations of a Moron. Mm-hmm. And it was about the way in which we're all assholes up until two months ago. <laughs> And then every two months you go, oh, boy, I was really an asshole right up until then. And it just keeps going on like that. And I, it was an evening of stories. It was the first evening of stories I ever did. And I had, it was videotaped and I showed it to my parents. And my father, who was a theater teacher and a, a critical mind and an academician, uh, said it's a good show and it's amazing how you can hold attention that long with just stories. That's really interesting. And I felt, and he said it's so truthful, and I felt compelled at this moment to start confessing to him, well, I, you know, I altered this one a little, and that one is only sort of what I, and he said, oh, for Christ's sake, Dylan, I know the difference between the facts and the truth. Yeah, yeah. Which, it it freed me to just lie. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> I, I, I try to remain truthful. Yes. I'm not always factual. Yeah, no. And I think most people who write memoir would absolutely be in line with that because it's, it's, it's part and parcel of the work. Well, there, there's no such thing as pure memory. There is not. No. It is always taken through a filter. Yep. Um, and my father is fascinated by memory and Proust and, mm. uh, and works a lot with memory in the plays that he writes. And he and I sort of have these recurring conversations. They're almost like recurring dreams mm. where we have this, we, we will discuss the same moments that we shared and we find that each of us remembers them differently, not only from each other, but from the last time we discussed them. Wow, yeah. Uh, so when I'm telling the stories, I'm trying to get at the truth of what happened, not necessarily the facts of the event. And sometimes they're, they're cut from whole cloth. Sometimes right. there's something I want to get at, and I create a story to get there. Oh, okay. All right. So there's, so there's some place that, that is a truth, uh, a universal truth that you want to get to within yourself or, the, or being a human and so you construct events to... Well, here's what's, here's what's boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a magician I know named Andrew Goldenhurst. He's mm-hmm. not what's boring. Um, <laughs> he's, he's a good guy. He, and, and I'd love to have him on as a guest, but he's a magician, so you'd have to see it, what he yeah. does. He's, he does miracle things. The first time I ever went to a comedy club, I'm interrupting myself to tell you this. The first time I ever went to a comedy club, uh, it was Catch a Rising Star in New York, and I was 17 years old. And I was checking it out because I was going to go to open mic night the next week. And the comic on stage was heckled. And he said, shut up, I'm working. And the heckler shouted, you have the easiest job in the world. And without hesitation, the man said, no, Edgar Bergen had the easiest job in the world. He was a ventriloquist on the radio. (laughs) And I put a beverage through my nose. And I have since, you know, I've since found out that a lot of people have worked with that premise, that it was kind of a stock thing. But at that moment, the idea that he could have been that quick with it was just sheer genius. <laughs> um, but here's what's boring. What's boring is I was hanging out with this guy, Andrew Goldenhurst. He's a magician. Uh, I'm intrigued by magic. Uh, the following night, uh, outside of a convenience store, I heard a homeless guy muttering to himself, want to see a trick, want to see a trick, I'll show you a trick, want to see a trick. And then on the drive from the convenience store to my home, I began to put words in rhythm. Mm -hmm. That's kind of boring. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, those two things sort of coalesced in my mind along with a story that was on the air at that moment about a loss of arts funding. Hmm. And I said, oh, that's interesting. What is a magician if he hasn't got a theater, if he hasn't got his props? What's a magician without his props? What's going to come out of that? Where do, and then it was about supporting the arts. Mm. And it just turned into... And that, I love that little piece. I'm glad you chose it to play because it's such a... a it's where I got the title of the album, A Twist of the Wit. Right. It's, and it's really about language and play and all that kind of fun stuff. Absolutely. But it's also one of my shorter pieces. Sometimes what I'm doing is just so long and, and heavy... And that piece is not the one I'm most proud of. Mm-hmm. It's one that I like a lot, mm-hmm. and I know a lot of people respond well to it, mm-hmm. but I don't go, oh, yeah, I put a lot of my soul on the page right, in right, that one. Right, 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 It's just pithy. It, yes. And yeah. sometimes pithy has a value. I, there was one moment in my life when I, I the, the first moment I ever believed that I was as witty as I like to pretend I am. <laughs> because I grew, I grew up watching uh, Marx Brothers movies on my living room wall mm. when my father showed them getting ready to teach them in film courses and watching MASH on TV. And I, it took me a long time to understand that they were scripted. Groucho was witty, and, but they always had a, that quickly a response. And I never was, I was always trying to memorize their banter right. so that if the circumstance came up, I could be there with it fast <laughs> with enough. With a little file card. And, exactly. <laughs> and I, to some degree I was. I was storing them away. Yeah. Years later, I would have an opportunity to use a line from MASH and I would blurt it out. Right. But there was one moment when I was walking with a friend of mine, Stephanie Kaiser, uh, the, the woman who taught me how to act. Hmm. Actually, I went to college with her. Uh, but this was, I don't know, 15 years ago. We were walking along together and she said, I smell chicken. And I said, and there's no one there. And she started to laugh. And it was the only time in my life that I could remember having had the instantaneous song finish 
to the phrase I had just heard in time to get it in without a pause. (laughs) And in that moment, I was Larry Gelbart. Oh, nice. And I said, okay, it doesn't happen every day, but once in a while... I really am that guy, and now I'm okay pretending to be that guy on stage by writing in advance. <laughs> uh, let's play another one of your uh, bits here. Mm. By all means, I enjoy my bits. Let's play uh, a little something called Uncomprehending. My, ma- my manager predicted that this is going to be the breakout hit from my CD, which makes me laugh because I've never heard of a comedy CD having a breakout <laughs> hit. If they play it on K-Rock, we know it's happened. <laughs> here it is, Uncomprehending. I live in uh, Silmar. It's not a crap neighborhood, but it is crap neighborhood adjacent. <laughs> I live in a townhouse with my dog, Sir Corin, the beautiful dog-faced dog, Brindle Beast of Silmar, and Lord Buckley Sweet Lips, greatest of all, Dane Mutch, the dinosaur-slaying dog, and, uh, and my wife, Nora, Naomi, something with an N, I think. Um, and in our little townhouse complex, there is no grass. So we walk our dogs out beyond the complex in the neighborhood where our neighbors have actual houses with lawns. And in fact, both of the dogs prefer one particular, well, they prefer the poopy lawn, I guess, which is why it's called that. And recently, somebody bought the house that sits behind the poopy lawn. And I had... Lord Buckley with me. And as always, he went to his favorite lawn. And the man who's recently bought the house stepped out through his front door and saw me with the dog looking for a spot and said, that's my lawn. Now, I do not like the passive-aggressive guess-my-intention game. (laughs) Also, we have been using that lawn far longer than he has owned the house, so I feel entitled. And if he didn't want us in front of his house, he shouldn't have bought a house with a poopy lawn. So I said, this is my dog. He repeated, that's my lawn. I reasserted my ownership. This is my dog. (laughs) He said, that's my lawn. I considered telling him once again that I owned the dog, but I was beginning to fear that he would think I was mentally challenged, and that wasn't what I wanted. So I took a different tack. And before I go further, let me say tack is the correct word. It is an idiomatic sailing term. It refers to setting the sail so that you can travel in a direction that is not directly parallel to the prevailing wind. It is not taking a different tact. If you have been saying take a different tact, people like me have been judging you harshly. And when I say people like me, I mean Suzanne Huang and Andrew Lederer. I really, I'm a ridiculous grammar dork. My wife once pointed out that I will correct people on the difference between nauseous and nauseated. That means I will not only correct your grammar, I will do it when you are at your most vulnerable. (laughs) In any case, rather than reasserting possession, I went another way. I said, I'm sorry, I don't speak English. He said, are you kidding me? I said, no. Seriously. I don't speak any English. At all. He said, we're speaking English right now. I said, I know it can be confusing. I've learned some words phonetically. And I'm told I have a pretty good ear for accents. It creates the illusion that I'm conversant. 
<laughs> Fluent even. But the truth of the matter is, I have no idea what either of us have been saying throughout this entire discourse. <laughs> While I said this, Lord Buckley hunched up like a tiny kangaroo, relieved himself on the man's lawn. I bent over and collected the excrement in a plastic bag, and rather than just walking away with it, I walked toward the man and said, if you want this, I won't have it bronzed. <laughs> he was a little confused and pointed to his trash cans. I said, I'll just put it in the trash over here then. He accused me with an extended finger, saying, I knew you spoke English. I could tell. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I matched his tone, pointed a finger back at him, and listed English words that should be Yiddish but aren't. I said, Moisten Hassel Kettlemint. Fashion Kitchen Felt, Kitchen Felt, Kitchen Felt. Threw away the dog poop and went home. A few hours later, Sir Corwin needed a walk. I took him to his favorite lawn. The man emerged from his house seeing a different dog and then realized I was the same dog owner. He froze in his tracks. I pointed to Corwin and smiled cheerfully as though we were now good friends and said, this is my dog. The man said, you're a retard and went back inside. As it turned out, that was exactly what I wanted him to think. But that's not the story about my dogs that I want to tell you tonight. Besides being smart and funny, uh, what is it that you want your audience to know about you? That I am better than they are. In what <laughs> Well, that would That's go with the smart right. and funny thing. That's not that right. Is, but, that was just me But being there's a glib. small part of you that feels yes. bad. <laughs> um, well, oh, the, the, the answers to that are so multi-layered. Mm -hmm. Because I, there's a part of me that just wants to intellectually bully people in the same ways that I was physically bullied as a child. You mm -hmm. know, or rather in this different way from a... And uh, it's about control and power and, and just proving that I'm smart and right. all that bullshit. That, um, but I, wa I, I really want, whenever possible, to be exposing the commonality of experience mm -hmm. um, and, to, and to be exposing people to the idea that it's okay not to keep anything that of, of which there might not be approval secret. Mm. Um, and it's, it's difficult because there are certain self-protections that I have to constantly be fighting against. Uh, for instance, the desire to be in control. And when I did my show in Auburn, in upstate New York recently, I did, uh, uh, it's, it's sort of a compilation of just the martial arts stories. It's called More Arts, Less Martial. Mm -hmm. um, and I did it in upstate New York. And on the first night, there was a, a heckler. She wasn't a horrible heckler, I and mean, she, was, she, she was the kind of heckler who believes they're helping and contributing. But I, Im I immediately slipped into old stand-up habits and shut her down fast and moved on, got a laugh, and moved on with what I was doing. And then I went back to my hotel room and did my little post-mortem and said, no, that's not who you are anymore. Mm. Um, there's, there's room for more than that in this. And uh, there was a, uh, I don't remember if it was Saturday or Sunday, but there was a matinee. And it's always a weird audience when you do a matinee. I don't know how much experience you have with different audiences. But the people who come to an afternoon show are not the same people who come to an evening show. Right. And there was a, it was a smaller crowd, and there was an old woman in the front row. And I, at one point, said uh, I had been working another club at one time, and it was a, a small, an intimate room. It was much like this, only more crowded together. Right. And the woman in the front row said, that's because they listed it wrong in the newspaper, which didn't sound like a heckle. Right. <laughs> I couldn't say, you know, shut up, lady. Who do you think? You she was actually offering <laughs> helpful information. And it was the opportunity I had 
been reminding myself of. Right. And I just sort of embraced it and said, oh, what's that? What is your name? Who are you? (laughs) And engaged her in a little bit of conversation that sort of I allowed it to lead me organically into my next piece. And it all felt lovely and warm and welcoming and very different from what I used to present as a comic. Mm. Um, And there I want people to feel that kind of freedom and safety when yeah. I'm on stage. Right. I talk about things about myself that I would have to keep hidden as a comic to, to maintain control of the room. Because in a, in a comedy club, when you're doing a joke every 15, you have to look completely in charge and never flustered and totally on top of it. And it has, it's, there's a power game that goes on that's very different from what happens when you're being open and warm and receptive to a room. That, that's so interesting to, to hear that. And I'm I'm wondering because there's certain comics who do self-deprecating humor, and and so I wonder where the power position is in that when they kind of use themselves as the butt of the joke in some way. Well, but they're in charge of the joke ultimately, I guess. Woody Allen was one of my heroes. Mm-hmm. Is one of my heroes um, more for the the humor and the comedy than for the pedophilia? But in general. <laughs> um, He's, he did marry her at least. He, I mean, <laughs> and, and he waited until she was of age. <laughs> and I'm sad. Um, okay. But uh, when you listen to his early stand-up, mm-hmm. which was genuinely brilliant. Yep. Yes, it's self-deprecating, and at the same time, the comic is always proving himself a little bit smarter than the audience. Sure. Just, sure. just yeah. to be able to get to the joke before you do. Yep. Um, so there's the intellectual superiority of that that's going on. Um, and this is going to sound odd, but no matter how low status one plays, Mm -hmm. if one is completely comfortable in front of an audience, the authority is given. Yeah. And I was going to say, even in being the, the courage, having the courage to be self-deprecating, puts you in a position of authority because you're standing up there saying, I'm willing to make fun of myself, which makes me more courageous than you, which therefore makes me more powerful than you in some way. You can be the most bulky, built-up, freaking football player, weightlifter of a guy on the planet. And if I'm standing in front of you and a room full of people saying, I'm not very well hung. Right. I win. Yep. Yep. It's, Um, It's true. And, uh, Until he beats the shit out of you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> for that, I have other skills. I'll tell you this, actually. I, that is true. He does have other skills, by the way. And like, let, 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 part of what changed for me as a, as a performer, and I didn't know it, was that with martial arts training, I no longer, I want to say ever, but that's not true, almost ever come from a place of fear. Right. And I did not know how much I was always coming from a place of fear, always mm. coming from a place of fear, mm. until I was able to defend myself in a, in a world of imaginary threats. Right, right. Wow. That's co- What's your daily routine like? Like, what is your weekly output? What, what is your goal every week? How much do you sit down every day? What's your writer routine? My, my goal every week is to sit down every day. <laughs> <laughs> You know, as a writer, the big thing is sitting your ass at a chair and, and, and actually getting some words on a page. I, I would love to give you the fake answer no, of great I want discipline. The, I want the real answer. Um, the real answer is this. I write every day. It doesn't always involve sitting at my desk and putting words into the computer. Right. Um, I, uh, I write in the shower, uh-huh. which is why I constantly need a new computer. <laughs> no. Oh, no. Man. Stupid. So bad. So bad. Um, uh, I write in the shower. I write when I'm driving. Yes. Me um, and uh, now, do you have a recorder when you're driving, or do you just dro- no? It's or, do, or does no. your brain actually keep I, information? I, I, I retain mine. it. I retain it in my brain, uh, and sometimes I lose stuff. But uh, frequently, what I write when I'm driving isn't what I wind up writing when I'm at the computer. What I'm writing when I'm driving will be lyrics and. Uh, uh, poetry and stuff that allows me to remember, oh, it rhymes through, it's much easier to remember, mm. so that by the time I sit down, I'm going, I'm not going to write a rap song. What was I thinking? Mm-hmm. Oh, I see what I was getting at. And then I have the ideas sort of framed out for myself, and now I just have to find the way to turn that into what I do. Yeah. Um, but I have always been 
inspired in my work, uh, which is to say, once I sit down to write something, it is it feels effortless to me. Right. Until I'm writing, I have forgotten how to write, and I'm afraid of it, and I don't know what I'm doing, and my wife has to reassure me. You know, and that's so much my experience, too. That's, it's so interesting. Once, once I start putting the words in order, yeah. it's fine. And, and, it's, and it's actually the thrill begins then. And, and last night I had an experience. We were out uh, at a local bar. There's a music thing every Wednesday night we go to. And I was sitting there, and I've been writing all week and really enjoying it. And I was sitting there last night actually craving playing with sentences and playing with words. And I thought to myself, I don't think I've ever craved it like this before. And I'm kind of excited about this new turn. There's a story. I can't remember who it is. I, I want to say that it was Anne Lamott, but I don't think it was. There was someone who was teaching writing. And a student came up to them and said, you know, I want to be a writer. What, what do you think? And she said, well, do you love sentences? Mm-hmm. And that was the most startling question she'd ever heard. Because when you're young, you look at something like that and you want to wear the clothes of a writer. <laughs> yes. You want to you sit with your typewriter. And have and, the groovy office. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And you want a cup of coffee in a specific place. I and mean, there's this stuff that has nothing to do with writing. Yep. And if you don't love sentences, yeah. there's very little point. Because <laughs> you're going to get bored pretty quickly. <laughs> it's it's very, very true. Um what was also I was going to ask you? Here? I don't remember. I know you don't. God damn it! Why not? Uh, oh, I did. I wanted to, you were talking about your dad earlier, who was a playwright. And My father is a playwright. He's a novelist. He is. Uh, he's a, a teacher of theater at MIT. And and so how much uh, you know between DNA, n- nurture, and nature, and all that kind of stuff? Uh, how? What did your parents? What did your early years? Like, how, how did that shape you into, you know, a person who has to get up and, and speak to strangers? Um, there's, there are a couple of balancing issues there. This is going to be very weird for me to talk about right now because uh, there is the influence that my father had on me. Mm-hmm. And there's the influence that your father had on me. <laughs> I get that a lot. And I'm, uh, yeah, and I don't know quite how to. It's okay. okay. You can walk through it, honey. I'll just, it's, thank it's you. all right. I, you know what? It's good to be a radio, uh, a radio host who has a degree in therapy. <laughs> um, uh, my father wrote every day. My father is incredibly disciplined. Mm. Uh, my father works in academia, uh, so he has a very full schedule, but every day throughout my childhood, two hours, he sat at his desk and wrote regardless. If he wasn't working on a play or a novel, he worked on his journal. He sat alone and wrote, and we were not to disturb him. That was his writing time. That was his thing. Yes. Um, and that modeled writing for me yes. in an incredible way. Also, uh, at that time, every two or three weeks, he was working on novels at that time when I, when I was young. Every two or three weeks, he would sit at the living room table with my mother and read her the pages he had written because he wrote longhand on yellow legal pads and nearly unintelligible writing. Um, and I would, so I would hear the progress of stories that I didn't fully comprehend. Oh, wow. And I was aware of his process and of him stopping to mark things off and change things and altering sentences. As he, I, mean, I was aware of all of that going on. Right. Uh, and I know when I was 11... I said I was starting work on my first novel. It wasn't good. Um, but uh, my father, wanting to encourage that, said that he would pay me 50 cents a page. Oh, wow. Uh, which taught me to write very quickly <laughs> and very large. A. Um, I, I, don't, I did not realize at the time that he was somehow setting that as my permanent rate. Hmm. Um, it took me a long time to be able to demand any money for my writing. Mm. Uh, there's a, a story that may go on the next CD about, uh, about what lessons I was given about money and earning money and how that's just messed up my life. But so in terms of the process of the artist as a writer, yeah. I had my father. Yeah. At the same time, I was in love with stand-up comedy right. and with your father. Right. Um, because I, I was in a conservative small town uh, we were the only Jewish family there. There might have been one other Jewish family there, but I wasn't aware that they were Jewish. All I knew was that I was being told I was going to hell all the time. Um, Lovely. And uh, and being invited to proselytizing events uh, without being told that's what I was being invited to. 
Oh, I thought you were going to be a friend. Never mind. Um, oh, thanks for showing me this movie about how crippled children will be okay. I don't think that's true. Um, uh, so uh, that was going on. And on television was the only place I heard anyone saying anything that sounded like the the discussions happening in my house, the world in my head, the right. the intellectual life. And at that time, comedy on television was intellectual. Mm-hmm. At that time, there was uh, uh, David Steinberg and and Dick Cavett mm. and uh, George, mm-hmm. uh, what's his name? And um, uh, but we were bombarded with these comics who were the great minds of the, of the time, right? And they were expressing ideas, and they were pushing the envelope, and they were saying things that weren't allowed to be said by anyone else, and they were immune from harm, as far as I could tell. Right, right. And the only times that I felt safe in school was when I was getting a laugh. Mm. Uh, If I didn't get a laugh, I was humiliated and embarrassed, and if I was getting beaten up, I didn't understand why getting a laugh didn't stop it. I know it was just, it was the only, it was the closest thing I had to a defense. Right. And it didn't always work. Right. But it was the closest thing I had. So the, the discipline of the writer that I was getting from my father, as well as the social immunity of the comic uh, came together to make me want to do it. Mm. Um, I remember at one point going into Skidmore, my father was teaching at Skidmore college at the time. Uh, and he went somewhere, and I was wandering around the theater department, and I wandered into the theater. And I stood on stage and imagined I was a comic. Mm. Uh, I had to be 10 or 12 in there somewhere. And when I saw my father, I lied and said that I'd been imagining that I was a comic, and I just had all the jokes right away. It was no problem. I could just say them, and everything I said was funny, and it was hilarious. And he said, well, you know what? Imagining is where it starts. That's great. Good for you. And that was lovely, but I felt guilty because I had lied. What had really happened is I had imagined being a stand-up comic, and I couldn't figure out how you get the jokes. Mm. I, didn't, I could imagine the rhythms, right. I could imagine the, but I didn't know how to do it. Right. Uh, and when I first started doing stand-up, I had someone else write an act for me. Actually, an ex-student of my father's wrote a terrible, terrible act for me. Um, it wasn't a terrible act, just not right for me. Mm. Um, it made reference to things that I didn't know how to pronounce. <laughs> and it was that kind of... Off the mark for me. Um, I, was, I was 17. What did I know? Um, sweet. But uh, it took me a long time to find my voice. Right, right. And w- once I did, I began to apply the discipline that I'd seen of the writer. And I still write there. I have a new novel I'm trying to sell. I have stuff that I write. Right. But for the stand-up, for the, the performance, for the storytelling, right. I'm able to apply that discipline. I... I watch what Rick Shapiro and Rick Overton do with awe. I know, yeah. Because they're so comfortable on stage not knowing where they're going next and finding their way and enduring the silence without knowing where they're going. I could not endure the silence as I endure if I didn't know that I knew what I was doing, if I didn't know that I had a place to go. There was a light at the end of that tunnel. (laughs) I'm taking you somewhere. Just trust me. I, I can't just say, you know... I trust myself to find it in the moment. Hell no. I'm going to do my homework and come in as well prepared as I can. And if that makes me slightly less hip, then I'm going to make up for it by using long words. Yeah, you know, I, I, can, I can relate to that. And I, like right now, my kind of stretching myself is learning to do things, pushing myself to do things where I don't have it all worked out. Because I write first, and I, as you know, I go up and, and read. And you know, my, one of my goals this year is to start memorizing and just telling my stories from inside my head. We have run out of time, Dylan. No way. I know. It's so sad. I'm sad. I know. I am too. But I wanted to have a little time here to say uh, some thank yous and give some people some information. First of all, Dylan, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Can I just say A Twist of the Wit is available at Amazon.com and iTunes? You can. I was going to say it, but you just said it. So there you go. Amazon.com and iTunes. Twist of the Wit. Dylan Brody. Uh, I just want to let you know that next week we're having Katie Goodman. The week after that, we're having Marianne Williamson. And then the week after that, S- Stephen Weber, the Stephen Weber on Twitter, is going to be here. I'm very excited about that. 
Uh, if you have any royalty-free music or want to fe- give me any feedback, please email me at wfadradio at gmail.com. That's wfadradio at gmail.com. I want to thank everyone who listens to this live and who's downloading on iTunes and from the archives. I so appreciate it. Big, deep, grateful bow to you. I want to thank... Johnny Dam, who runs the studio, Barbara Roman, who's my producer, my husband, Bob, the Twitterverse, Facebook land, all my friends and family, and that big mysterious thing my father used to call the big electron that today I'm calling peaches. Uh, So anyway, to close the show today, we're going to do one more little piece of Dylan's. This is a song that Dylan has written, and uh, it's It's from my stand-up days. It's very sweet, and uh, so enjoy. I love you all. Have a great week. Peace out. I wrote this song about my recent experiences playing my tunes. I got in trouble as a little kid at school. The teachers didn't understand my sense of cool. I grab attention by playing the fool. And refuse to relinquish the floor. Saying, everybody look at me, it's what I live for Everybody look at me Everybody look at me, I'm Dylan Brody over here Everybody look at me Now I tell jokes for an hour and a half Sometimes I don't care if the people even laugh Either way, I'd give up everything I had For just five minutes more of. Everybody look at me, hey, ain't I funny up here? Everybody look at me. Everybody look at me, hey, thanks for coming out tonight, folks. Everybody look at me. But then the jokes become a shield, and all the laughter that they yield is nice. But little's risked and nothing's gained on the whole. And the persona is a lie. Some witty fellow far more hip than I Who lets me hide in him the truth of my soul And everybody looks at him and where did I go? Hey everybody look at me How can he be getting all those laughs while I feel I am dying here? Look at me Now I've been writing all these little songs for years A sacred secret like a set of childhood fears Until a friend told me one brought him to tears By exposing me down to my core So everybody look at me I'll try to show you something real Everybody look at me Everybody this is what I really look like Everybody look at me Everybody look at me It's what I live for still Everybody look at me Everybody knows the truth is never pretty Just the same, please look at me New Dissident Radio New Dissident Radio On the Interweb Listen before it's illegal